Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Are you curious to learn about identity from someone who's a nobody? Well, on today's podcast, I have Sam LaCrosse. He is a self-affirmed nobody. He hasn't done anything amazing. He is not extraordinary or impressive. He's just an ordinary guy from Cleveland, Ohio, who now lives an ordinary life in Austin, Texas. But if you want to check him out, he writes blogs on the don'treadthisblog.com. Uh, that is an official don'treadthisblog.com. Uh, he hosts the Don't Listen to This Podcast. Uh, Sam is the CEO of the founder of Don't Do This LLC, a company that makes no money. And he is also the board member of a Thrive Living Corporation and ambassador to the Rally Cap Sports. So without any delay... I'd like to welcome Sam. Dylan, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate both the authenticity of the bio and you having me on, brother. Appreciate you. No, absolutely, man. I'm trying to say, like, it sounds like if I read the bio, I'm angry at you. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm, it's, I'm trying to, like, <laughs> I'm like, what? Um, uh, yeah, I get a lot of uh, theme through everything. I think identity is really interesting, something to study a lot. Um, but, I'd, you know, I'd love to get just a little bit of the history of uh, nobody himself um and, and, and learning how you kind of came across this sure well like the bio says and you know some of the if you think it's factual or not there are some you know a couple of facts in there so it's uh i was born in cleveland ohio was raised up there for the first 18 years of my life uh two two parents two siblings a dog usually around and then i went to school in columbus ohio i took a job out in boston massachusetts during the actually the first outbreak of covid in early the spring of 2020 and then moved out to austin in the following May and then kind of just was on the way, just wanted to, you know, I worked, I work in tech sales currently, but I do all my media stuff on the side. So I have my, I started my blog in 2020, my podcast in 2021, and then my book came out in 2022. And so all of that really, I would think recycles into it at least and feeds into it a little bit, I would say in all my mediums. And it actually, the book, the genesis, the idea for the book actually started on my blog. So I had, you know, two kind of first blog posts. One was the hi, I have a blog post. And then the other one was actually what turned out to be eventually chapter four in the book, which is a chapter on value economics. And so that was where the genesis of both the blog, the podcast and the book all kind of came from was that initial post. Got it. It's, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, I think uh, identity is, is really important. I mean, a, lot, a lot of people label onto it. They hold on to it. You can, you know, if you look at a lot of things around psychology and identity, you took, you you have this weird conundrums of humans that you have, thoughts that turn into actions that turn into habits that sometimes turn into identity but that's not always true you can flip that over and stuff like that and i'd love to kind of get a little bit of if, if you could kind of give us just a bit of value economics the study of the identity your book that's come out just so kind of people can kind of wrap their idea around or you know the concept itself yeah sure so i think to your point identity if not being the biggest question in our culture now it's one of the biggest questions in our culture now at least in my opinion and i think there have been a lot of extrapolating ideas and thoughts about what identity actually means to people. And I think my best guess is I can come up to identity is that it is defined at the individual level. I think especially in the recent years, we've seen a lot of people who have been put into groups based on either ethnicity or religion or skin color or gender or sexual orientation or whatever. And those things do matter, but I don't believe that they matter as much as what the individual person makes up that might be reflective of a kaleidoscope of all those identities. I think you have to treat a person as a person first and as an individual first. 
And so then at that level, I was saying, okay, well, what makes up a person? Like what makes up their individual self? And in my household, at least, I was raised by my parents, particularly my father, who would mention values in almost literally almost every day of my life. And so I was taught very young from both my parents, my grandparents, a lot of my family members that values were the key to discovering what your identity is as a person, at least with my construct of the idea when I was young and growing up. And then I kind of realized when I grew up, I didn't know how to define what a value was. And so I knew what they were in abstract. We all know what certain things are in abstract, but when you're asked for a concrete definition, what that definition is. So there's a lot of things that we see in daily life, like, you know, what is a circle, a square? Uh, you know, there's documented things out that what is a woman? And we all know what these things are in abstract now. But when you break it down to the nuts and bolts, what are those things? And so I really kind of started to challenge myself internally and say, okay, what is a value? What are values? And I realized I really didn't know what those things were. And I said, well, that's kind of an interesting question that could solve a bigger question. And so that was when I kind of went off on my own to really discover and go on this journey. And the way I initially thought about it, it was in the summer of 2019. And I remember thinking about the relationship between sacrifice and value. And so I just was, you know, weird things that I just kind of think about in my head or whatever. And so I was, you know, thinking about, okay, this is a relationship between two things. And the thing that I said was basically the more you sacrifice something, the more you probably value that something. And the less you sacrifice to get that something, the less you probably value that something. And so I thought that that kind of made sense. And so I was sitting in my senior year of college in early 2020 and late 2019 and kind of saying, we were in an economics class and I was a you know, senior in college and I kind of had senioritis at that point. So I was kind of checked out in the back of the room, but we were talking about supply and demand curves or very simple relationships between two things. And I said, well, wait a second, this is a relationship between two things. That's a relationship between two things. So what if in order to kind of conceptualize and explain this idea, I took those two things and tried to model it. And so that eventually became what I saw in my first blog post, which is basically a parody or spinoff of the supply and demand graph with value and sacrifice being the inputs instead of supply and demand. And then I thought it worked well. And I thought I reasonably explained the idea. And so the next month I said, okay, why don't I do a chapter two? And then I did a chapter three and a chapter four and I got all the way up to chapter seven or eight. And then I was like, okay, I think I might have something here. So I really just kind of took that and I analyzed it and I said, I should probably try to go for this. And I already had kind of a publisher in mind and what I wanted to say about the book. And I just needed to refine some things. And then that eventually turned out to be value economics study of identity, which came out on June 28th of 2022 of this year. So. That's it's fascinating. I mean, it makes a ton of sense too. I mean, looking at just the the value curves, right? You're talking of value versus sacrifice. And if, if you're looking at that, that relationship of, you only know if you value something if you're willing to sacrifice for it, yep. right? And uh, you know, I think you know, one of the misconceptions I had that you know I came across fairly recently was the idea of addictions versus commitments, right? <laughs> right. And if you look at if you look at that, you what you what do you think is true freedom, right? If you're looking at true freedom, right? People have thought that what true freedom is is I want what I want when I want it, right? Like I'll have it whenever. Yep. Right. That's whatever. I want it, but, but that's that's more of an addiction, right? If you look yeah. at a commitment, that, that's really a value set, which is I want what I want no matter what. No matter if I'm tired, no matter if I'm hungry, no matter if I'm upset, no matter if my ego gets in the way, no matter if yeah. any of that stuff, right? And so the, the, I think the difference I think people confuse in terms of freedoms is they, they confuse addictions 
You know, I, you know, I want, I want a healthy body, but I also want to be able to shove my face with cheeseburgers throughout the day, all day yeah. long. You really, yeah. you really start to see what people are willing to sacrifice for what they value. And this difference between, I think the the illusion of freedom is yeah. so, which is that's kind of the, that's what's resonating with me um, along the path. Have you seen other, what other ones have you seen in terms of that, that relationship that really stand out? I would say the, the key thing that you said with all of those type of situations is either well, the freedom is an interesting point because, you know, addiction is a type of slavery. When you really look at it, it's a form of mental and physiological slavery because I mean, when you're addicted to drugs or you're addicted to alcohol and later in the book, I explain kind of some things that I was kind of going down the wrong path of being addicted to as well. Not anything as serious as that, thank God. But, you know, you don't really get to choose whether you want to do those things or not. You just have them chosen for you by your brain overpowering other parts of your brain. But I think the other key word in your mentioning and your definition of that was commitment. So what I say in the book, I think, I don't know if I say this directly, but I make a lot of references to this is that, you know, good fathers don't become good fathers by accident. Like good marriages don't become good marriages by accident. You have to really, really work at them. And anyone who is exceptional, I wrote a post on my blog and did a podcast called the true cost of greatness and a couple, you know, I would say about a year and a half ago now, and I said, the people that are truly great at something and great is a very, very, I think, overused word in our society. I think a lot of those superlatives are kind of overused in a lot of ways. But I think the people that are truly great at something got there because they sacrificed nearly everything in their life to obtain that something. And you look at basically a lot of I think, you know, rock stars are probably one of the easiest examples to name. Like how many rock stars who have just changed the world, who have changed the way we looked at music like Aerosmith or Led Zeppelin or any of those guys? They are, you know, I'm seeing Motley Crue in a, in about a month down in San Antonio. I'm coming nice. from Austin now. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix movie about them, but those dudes wrecked a lot of part of their lives to get famous. And they were really, really famous. They were one of the greatest. They're one, in my opinion, one of the greatest rock bands of all time. My parents actually saw them last week, too. My dad and my mom were huge fans of them. My dad oh, cool. especially. But um, so but those guys, they sacrificed a lot of their life to get what they wanted to get, which is basically becoming one of the greatest rock bands in the history of the world. And this is the same with all business people, with all really, really good fathers, with all really good mothers, with all really good people that are in charge of something or responsible for something, church leaders, community leaders, all these other people. And so I think commitment is the key thing with all this other stuff. And, you know, this kind of goes into a couple other points in the book about choosing what hard you want to live with in your life, because commitments are never easy to obtain throughout your entire course of your life. Like, you know, no matter who you marry or who you spend your most of your time with or whichever that's going to be. It's not going to be easy to sustain that thing. You really have to kind of work at it. You have to go through hard times to get that. But once you do, then I think it reaps greater value than not having something of commitment that you can hang your hat on at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it always feels good afterwards, man. It's like going yeah. to the gym or doing anything else. You have the, yeah. the easy fun versus the hard fun. And the easy fun mm -hmm. is the slacking off and Netflix or whatever you might be doing. And then or the other ones at the end of that. So, so you get that pride in yourself, that identity yeah. of accomplishment. Right, mm -hmm. which is which is interesting. Um, have you seen any models or things? I mean, you had one of those models you're talking about value versus sacrifice. Are there any of these other models that can help you identify your identities or your values or your traits? Yeah, I would say that the one that I think is very very interesting is uh, the one that is focused on chapter six, which is diminishing returns of value. So there's a concept inside of chapter six that I discuss in economics called diminishing marginal returns. So after a while, this is kind of talking a little bit to your point, I think about addiction and about a lot of things that people become obsessive compulsive over after a while. There's this concept in economics where it's basically saying you can only add so many things before that good thing becomes a bad thing. 
And I don't know if I named this example specifically inside of the book, but the reason that the assembly line worked when Henry Ford did the assembly line back when he created Ford Motor Company is that he had just the right amount of people on the assembly line. But if he had less, it wouldn't work. And if he had more, it wouldn't work. And a lot of people would just say probably, you know, if you want to become more productive in an assembly line, just add more people to put on more parts and everything else. But that's not necessarily always the case because this is the too many cooks in the kitchen dilemma where you go back and you have a bunch of people trying to make one cake and people are trying to want to do different things and throw different shit in it and everything like that. And it just doesn't really work at the end of the day. And so you have to realize when to settle when you want to go after something of value, because when you need to settle is probably the most key thing you can do before you fall off a cliff, basically. And I, I use a lot of, I think, incidents inside of that chapter to describe it, but I don't know if a lot of people in your audience would be familiar with this, but I think the, the stand, the, well, excuse me, that I used was the call her daddy fallout with call her daddy. And the story of the call her daddy podcast fallout. We seem to have technical difficulties was that Sophia Franklin, who was the part. Um, oh, sorry about that. Yeah, we, we kind of skipped a beat there, but you're back. You're back now. I heard Call Your Daddy okay, podcast cool. and one of the issues that you had with that. Can you please continue? Yeah. 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 So I, I can. It, it's I was wasn't deep in the story anyway. So I think that, you know, the original Call Your Daddy podcast was such a great idea. And there's a reason why it got so popular. And there's a reason why Alex Cooper, in my opinion, is the greatest and the biggest female media personality in the world right now at least the biggest independent female media personality in the world right now was because the idea was really good. But the reason why Sophia Franklin could not really reap the value that Alex Cooper is, is because she didn't know when to settle. She got really greedy. She pressed Dave Portnoy, who was running Barstool Sports for no more money. She really kind of strained her relationship with Alex Cooper. And then now she's basically, I think after the immediate fallout, she was like living in her mom's basement for six months. And Alex Cooper raked in a $60 million Spotify deal while doing a podcast for basically 10 times less the time than Joe Rogan did, who got paid $100 million from, from Spotify. So you have to know really when to take your losses and when to bounce back and really when to move forward in life. Because if you ride something so hard and so far, when it's really not reaping any more value for you, you're going to run into a wall. And I think that can be true of a lot of different things, whether that's a bunch of, you know, whether that's your business, whether that's your relationships, whether that's your friendships, whether that's anything really that you have. You have to know when to really step back and reassess and go forward in another way because if you keep riding something for a very long time and it doesn't reap any value for you then it's not really something you value in my opinion it's not mm. so it's it's almost like uh, the, by the fact of if you go so hard onto something and you put so much energy in it the diminishing returns is almost the, the scarcity of the value and becomes less scarce because you have an over an abundance of it so right because you have an over an abundance of the of the value the things that aren't scarce aren't valuable like people Right. You're on it. You're uh, having COVID. You, you, you never see anybody. You finally go out and you meet someone for the first time at a, at a conference or whatever. You're like, oh, my God, people. Uh, but if you're yeah. in New York City and you've been around there since the beginning, people all around you, the inherent value of people drop because you're just, you know, people are amazing. They're, they're wonderful. But sometimes it's just too much of anything. So not yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's super, that's super interesting. Um, I, I, along with the the book's creation as you're going through and kind of coming across these models and coming out with these terminologies, understanding, just kind of creating a, a mental model for yourself of, you know, what does it mean to have values and, and, and all that? Is there anything that you came across that you wasn't expected? Were there any things like, I know that you're the way that you present yourself in the businesses is, is, is a very opposite approach, uh, yeah. unintuitive. Um, are there any other, uh, unintuitive revelations that you've come across? I think, 
this wasn't necessarily an unintuitive realization, but, and this is uh, something, an idea I actually sourced from a guy who I look up to quite a bit, uh, Mark Manson, who's one of my favorite author in the world. And he's, I think a brilliant, brilliant mind in our society that needs a lot of brilliant minds right now. And I think that the key that I think a lot of people did not realize, and I wanted to kind of hit them with this early in the book, it's actually at the very end of the first chapter, is that the act of having values is also the act of polarizing people. It's the act of polarizing people and not having everybody be okay with your lifestyle all the time. And, you know, you have to have, and I just basically say people as a warning, like, as soon as you adopt values and you live honestly through your values, you are going to alienate some people. You cannot be all things to all people. There's a famous phrase. I don't know who said it, so forgive me, but a man who values everything values nothing. And that's very, very true because if you really, and this is the thing with people who say that they're quote unquote, oh, I love inclusivity. I, I love everybody. I love everybody. And it's like, well, no, you don't. I mean, because, you know, do you love uninclusive people? No. No, you, you don't. I mean, I, I doubt the people who are saying that, you know, I love all people, everything else. It's like, do you really like that person who's like a racist or like it doesn't like people because they're gay or something like that? It's like, no, they probably don't. So even the people that really preach either soul inclusivity or or soul, I would say, exclusivity, they really aren't preaching either one of them because they have to include people. You have to exclude people. So it's all about choosing which of those groups and what people you want to do by living through your values. And I think if you really kind of come to terms with that, you can have a really easier time accepting your values and really living through them as you go on. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a tricky bit for a lot of people uh, looking at that. Mm -hmm. I know that like because people are like, hey, I, I believe in unity and I believe that everybody's we're all one. So but then people go against their their actual values. And, and you really find that out when people, you know, when you push comes to shove against their rights. Right. And yeah, you can, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find that out real quick. And. I think that you're you're right is when you have values if you stand for something then the people are you're going to automatically push against somebody else which means you're going to yep. be in a way you're going to be prejudiced prejudice if you are if you value a healthy body you see someone with an unhealthy body you're going to have opinions if you value a successful business you see someone unsexual you're going to have opinions and uh it's it's a it's a difficult thing for people to understand what they'll push against but i think so many people want to ultimately be liked from everybody that they they'll stand for nothing right and they'll have that chameleon effect well they'll, they'll adopt a stance based upon what group they're a part of just to be accepted to be a part of the tribe because we very much want to be autonomous and be individualistic but they're very much often the same time we want to be accepted by the tribe which is humans are kind of funny in that weird kind of uh double standard conundrums that we have oh dramatic pause for that one i think sam went ahead and froze up again i believe we are having some technical difficulties i don't know if this is just the And we are back, I believe. We'll see what's going on here. Sam? Sam, where'd you go, buddy? I lost you. Oh, completely out of here. So let's um, let's see what's going on here. We had some sort of internet issue. I don't know if it's on my side or on his side. Uh, I am internet connected. So I'm, I'm going to check my Wi-Fi connection right now. And we're going to see what's going on. We'll see if Sam pops back in or what not happens. So let's check my internet speed while we're doing this. Internet speed. Is it me or is it just Sam? Or is it me and Sam? Are we doing this together? <laughs> I tell you one of my values. So one of my biggest values here is connection. 
I'm very big on connections and communication and having conversations and going at it back and forth and being able to really do that. And so when I can't have connections, it does like, I'm like, oh man, that's just rough. Um, right now, my uh, internet speed seems to be doing like 320. So I'm pretty solid on that. We'll see if Sam comes back here and we're going to see what's going on. Sam. Hey, buddy, you there? From my perspective, I'm looking at it. I see that I've, uh, we've got you with a one red bar in terms of reception and you have a black screen. So I don't know what's happening, brother. Um, oh, and you're going to come back. Now you've got full bars and welcome back. <laughs> Sorry about that, man. I think that was my internet connection. I think I died out on you. So I apologize about that. Usually never happens, but yeah, no, I understand. It's okay, man. I was checking my internet speed. I'm like, is it me? Or is it him? Or what's going on? No, no, no. I was, I was, yeah, I was checking mine too. I was like, oh shit. I didn't know if I'd really mess it up or whatever. I was talking about, uh, it's funny because as we were talking, I was, I was mentioning as I was just, you know, talking to the, uh, the screen here was about one of my biggest values that I realized is on, on my thing is connection. I'm really yeah. big on having good, solid connections in all its forms. So whenever like internet doesn't work, I'm like, oh man, because especially if you're having something like a personal, intimate conversation or you're going at it right there and also the connection gets dropped and that could be through technology or that could be thinking about having had the groceries done. Or, or yeah. you know, leave my pilot yeah. on, right? You're like, wait, yeah. are you here? Come back. Come <laughs> on. We're in a yeah. conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Come back to this. Um, I do want to dive in. Uh, so for uh, for you or for nobody, which is weird to say, but for you, what 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 do you have in terms of do you have you identified your values, the things that you stand for and what you believe in, the things you stand against? Yes. So I think in chapter three of my book, I name all five of my values. I actually have a list six of my values. The 10th chapter is devoted to the sixth value because I think it's the one that basically everybody should have, in my opinion. So the, my values are, and bear with me if I stutter, struggle to remember them. It's funny. I wrote the book and then I forget all these things that are in the book. So it's um, self-awareness, discipline, responsibility, authenticity, stability, and then myself is the last one. So you value yourself in terms of like you feel that you're worthy of love, respect, honor. Is that what you mean when you say value yourself? It's something different than that because I think okay. that you – I go into the, the final chapter is called the value scarcity principle. And it's about you know the concept, what I have deemed – and maybe someone else has come up with this. So I, I maybe just regurgitate all these ideas for nothing. But I came up with a concept called self-value. And so we hear a lot of things in our culture currently around I would say self-love, self-acceptance, self-all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there is something to be said for that because you do need to love yourself and you do need to kind of have that appreciation for yourself and kind of what you've gone through in your life, the kind of person you are for doing good things, all that kind of stuff. But you shouldn't love yourself necessarily if you're not doing things that are valuable to yourself. So you need to have that sense of value about yourself before you can love yourself, in my mm. opinion, because mm. if you're doing bad things. If you're, like you said, if you're eating unhealthy, if you're kind of wrecking all your relationships, if you're being a narcissist, if you're kind of being a really bad friend or a bad husband or bad, whatever, then you shouldn't love that about yourself. You shouldn't accept who you are. And I think this, the, the scene that I, or the allegory that I pull into the metaphor into the chapter is, I don't know if you're a breaking bad fan at all, but my favorite scene in the whole show of uh, breaking bad is when Jesse Pinkman basically drops a nuke on the self-acceptance movement with, his speech where he basically admits to his AA group that he did a really, really bad thing. He killed somebody and he kind of frames it in the sense that he killed a dog that was a quote unquote problem in his neighborhood. 
And then one of the other addicts who's at this AA meeting, she calls him out on it. And she's basically saying like, you know, how could you do this? How could you kill an innocent dog? How could you do everything else? And Jesse, who's feeling so guilty about this is he feels visibly, you can see it on his face in the camera. He feels a sense of relief that someone is finally telling him that what he is doing to himself and to other people is wrong and that he's doing some, a bad thing. But then the AA group leader turns back to her and she says, we don't judge people here. We don't do that. You don't yell at people. And then he, and then Jesse turns on the group leader and says, well, why not? I did a bad thing. Why shouldn't she correct me when I did a bad thing? And he said, you know, beating the hell out of yourself is not going to do anything else. And he's not going to do everything. And so he's like, okay, so should I, I should just accept that I'm this piece of shit person who just goes out and does whatever he wants. And is kind of a hedonist and does whatever he you know feels like doing and whatever. And then, so he basically calls the group leader out on his, a lot of his own stuff that he had shared vulnerably with his drug, with his drug rehabilitation group. And he kind of just says, you did all these things. You know, I called, I, and he's like, I lied to you. I've done all these things. I, and he, the, the ending line is my favorite part where he basically says, I made you my bitch. Do you accept that? And then he says, no. And then he's like, well, it's about time. And then he gets up and leaves. And so I think that scene is so powerful because he basically drops a nuke on the entire movement of self-acceptance should what you're doing to yourself and what you're doing is quote unquote loving yourself is not really valuable to you. So I tend to go on that concept of valuing myself as the concept of self-value. I do things that are in the best interest of myself and those that I care about and those that share my values. And I think that that needs to come before loving yourself because if you're loving yourself for the wrong reasons, then that's not really loving yourself at all. Mm. Yeah. Those are really interesting points. The the thing I think there's a there's nuance. Like, you know, when you say the word love, right? Yeah. There's yeah, like sure. there's a ton of different loves. There's sexual love, there's unconditional love, there's mm -hmm. there's loving with standards, right? And then you know, it's like the it's like if you look at it, if you treat your love the way a parent would love a child, and a parent would love a child, they still love their child unconditionally, but at the same time they they hold them to a higher standard. And I think there's like that self-acceptance right. piece that we're, we're missing the part of the conversation is that, is that when, and we know this, what in ourselves, we know that there is a certain level of respect. Cause I don't think it's love. I think it's respect, right? Yeah. I, think yeah. I think it's more respect, right? Because you can, if you disrespect your own word, Oh, I'm going to go out and get that job. I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to go do that thing. Right. And then you don't do it you have this relationship with yourself. I have this relationship with myself. That's like, you lying piece of shit. You say you're going to do it, but you yeah. don't do yeah. it. Right. Yeah. And like, Oh, yeah. it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. If you let yourself down and let down the people around you and let down everybody that cares about you and you know, wh whatever that thing might be. And you yep. need you. But the things I think we do like it when people say what we're secretly feeling, even if it's about ourselves, like, Hey, get your ass up, get the shit done. It's time to go. It's time to yep. get things done. And when yep. we get that, it's like, thank you. Instead of, and there's like, it's counterintuitive, much like your, your, uh, your wonderful bio and podcast name. Well, thank and you. Thank you. I appreciate it's, a, it. it's a counterintuitive statement, but you're talking about self-respect, right? And the fact mm -hmm. is that you, if, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do and I don't do what I, what I say are my true values, right? I value honesty and integrity and I lie to everybody that I meet. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have this thing where I'm like, I don't believe myself. Right. Which means yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't earn the right to say I'm someone of worth if mm. I'm holding, if I hold no values to myself. Yeah. So, so it's a really interesting thing. And, and I do, from what I've seen, 
is when someone, at least for myself in my own world, when I'm when I'm causing bullshit and somebody shines a light on it, the first instinct is to like snap and be like, what are you doing? Don't look at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the second one is like, oh, okay, you're totally right. You got it's time to go. My hand yep. has been caught, you know, in the cookie jar. It's time to get up and get rolling. It's um have you do you have in there? I think this is a very valuable thing on self self acceptance, but it's really about earned self acceptance. Yeah. Um, you know, is is there ways to recompense that, or are there things that you've seen along that way to say, okay, well, you might be going off course here, but here's how you can get on course. That's a really good question, and I don't know if I give a firm prescription inside of the book because, again, I want it to be an individualized look at myself. So I could really only say what my personal experience with self value was like, and I can go into that if you'd like me to. Sure. But I think it's kind of yeah. So I was addicted to pornography for most of my adult life. So I remember I was, I was a, and when I say I was addicted to porn, I was like a hard, like I was the hardest core porn addict I'd ever met in my entire life. And so I had really kind of, you know, dove head first into all this other kind of stuff. And I remember it basically, and I was talking with this about my parents yesterday, cause you know, it's, it's kind of an awkward conversation when you write about having a porn addiction and your parents read the book and you're like, oh, that's going to be a conversation I really don't want to have at, at, at some point later. And um, so that was an interesting conversation, even though they were very, very cool about it. So shout out to shout out to shout out to mom and dad on that one. But yeah, yeah. mom, quit doing my laundry. I got it. Leave it alone. Yeah. yeah, no, dude. It was it was it was weird because I and I knew like you know it was it was all over my LinkedIn. I knew like a lot of my work colleagues are going to see yeah, this. And I was yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't that's really right. know. What's gonna, yeah, Policy, so it was. It, well, thank you. I, I, I mean, it, it's. I think it's a legitimate problem that a lot of people For are talking sure. about. I think, yeah, I think it's a very, very legitimate problem that a lot of people aren't talking about. So I think it could have killed two birds with one stone there. But basically, the the end of the day is that you know I was so I valued myself so little that I was living basically a fake life, and I kind of really did everything that I could to try to you know again be all things to all people, appease everybody, do everything that I wasn't really passionate about doing or not passionate about doing, but should have been doing, I should say, like I was, I should have been going out and living my life in more of a constructive fashion. And I, it got to a point where I was, you know, watching porn twice a day for probably about two hours. You know, I planned my entire life around it. I planned when my stock, my roommate's schedule in college where he would be out of the room so I can have the room to myself and do all this other stuff. I was staying up way too late. I was looking at my screen so many times I was objectifying women. I was, I was an incel basically. I was a glorified incel for most of my, you know, adult life. And I still am working my way out of that. I don't think I'm an incel anymore, but it was getting really, really bad and really, really destructive to where, you know, I could be, you know, I, I was, I was wrecking my life. I did not have a life. And so I think that, you know, I ultimately had to look myself in the mirror and it got to, a, I think, you know, you have to get to a point where you reach really, really pit, like peak disgust almost with your behavior about what you're doing. Like I remember at, it, it got to a certain point, I don't go into really graphic detail in the book, but I say a few pretty graphic things that, you know, I was watching inside of that kind of stuff. And I remember just, I would finish, you know, my quote unquote session when I was watching porn or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, I remember just almost like retching in my bed, like dry heaving because I was so disgusted with the things I was watching. And I was like, you know, I, I looked at myself, I'm like, you're kind of, a disgusting person for like revolving your life around this kind of a sun. Like you're not a very constructive person. You're not a very positive person inside of society. Like you need to get your shit together. And so I remember just looking at that and having a moment to myself where it was like this central thing that I fixated on for a while was the thing that distracted me from all my pain in my life, which I detailed through and everything else. And 
why well, I, I want to, you know, clarify this too. I was not like abused as a child. I didn't have a lot of stuff. I have, you know, other things that a lot of people have to deal with on an individual level, but you know, that was the way I coped with a lot of the stuff that was going on in my life was that I would go and, you know, relieve myself by, you know, hit, getting that dopamine head off of watching porn. That was what I would do, you know? So it was, so I basically used that as kind of my referendum by saying, I was here, I hit this peak of just self-loathing, self-disgust. I didn't like myself. I hated myself a lot of the time for what I was doing and how I was kind of, you know, sucked into this rabbit hole of objectifying women, objectifying myself, not treating people with respect, not treating myself with respect to your point. And I had to course correct. And then thank God I was, you know, at that point, you know, getting started into blogging and all this other stuff. And I could write out my feelings and kind of get my feelings out in a more constructive way. And I end the chapter with basically saying that I'm going to be basically addicted to porn and sex and sexual deviancy for probably the rest of my life. And that there's a reason why, you know, drug addicts and alcoholics anonymous meetings exist when people have been sober for 35 years. It's because the truly honest people, in my opinion, and I did a lot of research into addiction while doing that chapter. Um, they know they're going to be addicted for the rest of their life. They know their brain chemistry is permanently altered by what their past existence told them that was true about themselves. And so I basically wrote that in the end of the book to say that, you know, it's either you live by this other set of values or you're probably going to get sucked into your other destructive set of values if you don't counteract that with something, you know? So that was kind of my personal reference point by saying, like, I was just so such in a bad place that I really wanted to get out of it so badly, more than anything I ever wanted to do in my entire life. And I was telling my parents the other day, there are a lot of people who really, I don't think don't get as lucky as I do because, you know, I'm, you know, normally uh, you probably can't see it right now, but I have, you know, an island in the middle of my counter in my apartment and I like whiskey and I have a whole shelf of whiskey, like right on my island. And I knew that if I was, I knew I've known a lot of alcoholics. I know a lot of functioning alcoholics right now. I knew that if they had that same shelf of whiskey on their kitchen countertop, it probably wouldn't end up well for them a lot of the time. It probably would not end up well for, for them a lot of the time. That's a much worse thing to be addicted to than porn, for sure, because that can kill you. Porn can do a lot of things. It messed up my mind. It messed up a lot of people's minds, but it can't kill you at the end. At least I don't think at the end of the day, maybe by, you know, hemorrhaging your dick or something, but I don't know. But um, that was, you know, all that other kind of stuff. But it's it's all an individualized thing. So that was my personal reference point that I use. But it can be, I think, anyone's kind of personal hell that they're going through that they use to cope with their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. You got me stuck on hemorrhaging your dick. It was very good. Maybe that's probably the only way it can kill you, but I, I don't know, unless you're into some really weird I, shit. I mean, you could, I could, I, you could, I mean, I'm sure there's some, some creative ways that you could have some sort of final destination issue pop up. Oh, where, you know, oh where, for sure. Where, yes. Where it goes around. I'm, I'm sure in some, some uh, backwards porn somewhere it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, one, I mean, I commend you on being able to do that. Not a lot of people can like talk about the the most thing that the, the thing that they have the most insecurity about, right? And make it incredibly public and to actually say, Hey, I'm addicted to porn. I'm into these things, right? And I think we all have different addictions. And I think right now, like porn is it's just so easy. It's such an yeah. easy pleasure button. It's like, well, you could work out really hard and do something really hard and challenge yourself, or you could just do this for a couple of minutes. And there's the universe of naked people and you get anything you want, right? As yeah. much as you want. And all yeah. you got to do is click a button. And that's the thing is like right now we have everything, everything's around. And the challenge is, is we have to kind of wade through that to try to do stuff that makes us proud. It's just hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's a hard shit to do. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to touch on this because I think this is, I think this is like, I think it's super impressive. Um, you know, putting out there a message of something that you're, you know, shame lives in a vacuum, right? So mm -hmm. when you, when you go online, you say, Hey, 
addicted to the porn, right? And that's the one thing I, you know, I've I've talked about, you know, I've talked about crapping my pants on ayahuasca and just completely clogging the toilet. I've, I've had I've had full conversation. I've had, I've gone out right, and it's very, you know, but they're very personal kind of conversations that there's a lot yeah. of shame around it. And you know, until you get that out there, can you talk to me about? Is there have you always been able to, to, is there another time when you've had to put something out there that was incredibly personal and private as public as possible? I think that's a really powerful thing for starting to form a, 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 a lack of a better term, a more powerful identity of being able to endure the judgments of other people. Um, are there any things else that you've seen or can you talk to me more about the experiences of taking something incredibly private and making it incredibly public? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Tim Kennedy, who is a former UFC fighter and a Green Beret, and I think an all-around great human being. I actually work out at his boxing gym. I've never met him tonight. So, Tim, if you listen to this podcast, then, you know, shout out to you. But, um, yeah, so what up, Tim? And I think, so Tim has a, a saying or a, a line that I think is very, very powerful where there's two, he said, I think it's something like there's two, I would say, the most two powerful forces in a human being's life are failure and shame. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so those are two things. And that's literally all of the book in part. And I have a saying with all my blogs, all my podcasts and with my book, because there are times, especially when I'm talking about something going on in the world or something where I go after some people for something that I don't think is right, that people are doing and everything else that needs to be paid attention to. But I have a saying that I will never be harder on anyone else in the world than I'm harder on myself. And I basically, you know, in order to get people to take me seriously, and I didn't want to come from this kind of, I would say, self-help typical like cliche self-help con artist type of person where I'm this greatest person in the world and you people are bad and you need to fix your shit and everything else. And I'm perfect and all this other kind of stuff. So I wanted to basically say, do the complete inverse and say that I am this imperfect messed up person who's done all these things. And I, and I, I let that bear, I think a lot throughout the book, like I had a 1.02 GPA in my sophomore year of college. I almost failed out of school. Like I got, you know, I talked about the time I got, you know, punched in the face and you know, beat up by people and bullied and online harassed and all these types of things and everything like that. So my failures with women, that's another big thing. That was kind of what led, I think, to a lot, a lot of the, excuse me, a lot of the porn addiction stuff was because I was literally afraid of women for most of my life. And I talk about that very, very openly. And I think that, you know, the only way to get people to be vulnerable and confront themselves is to confront yourself first. And so I wanted to be able to do that in a forum where I could really just kind of put the onus on myself to maybe be open and vulnerable. And it was very, very powerful to me, honestly. It felt like an exorcism that I got a lot of weight lifted on my shoulders from doing that. And I had talked to people privately about some of that stuff and everything and a lot of my insecurities and my failures and my shame and everything like that. But I think, you know, it was very, very, I would say, therapeutic for me at the end of the day. I don't know if that answers your question, but that was kind of what I... It, it does. I think it's an important lesson that I think, you know, um, is, is good to know for I me, mean, for myself and for everybody else is that like, like people are like, how do I, how do I become super powerful? How do I become amazingly strong? How do I, how do I become the person that knows going to lead me on to victory? It's like, okay, take the thing you absolutely fear the most and share it as publicly and openly as possible. And everyone goes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep, and it's natural, and I get it. Uh, for get sure, it. man. Yeah, dude, for sure. Like, I mean, I mean, it's super natural to be. It's super natural. It's natural, natural to uh, to be afraid of women, you know, because we have this whole tribal instinct thing, man. It's like if we get rejected yeah. by that woman, the other woman's gonna see us, and then no one's gonna want to sleep with us, and then our genes get kicked out of the tribe, and then we die, right? Yeah, it always leads down to <laughs> then we die, right? Um, and, and there's that judgment about like wanting people to accept us, but you want to, you also want that, that that's why I think it's cool. Like we talk about being a nobody and you talk about 
having you know porn issues that we've all had porn issues we're like man i think i'm clearly jerking off way too much i need to take a break yeah. and i'll dehydrated or, or whatever the thing might be yeah the people relate to that like it's super relatable and i think in order for people to get people hate it when you preach from the top of the mountain saying i'm amazing yeah. you're like versus like hey I'm a, I'm a just as much as a dirtbag as you are. I just do yeah. it way less often now. This is how yeah. I did it. Come this way or, mm -hmm. <laughs> or go mm -hmm. this way, should I should say. Um, yeah. So, uh, like, I think that's, I think it's really powerful, man. I think it's beautiful that you got people, you know, you're able to put that out there and, and, and take that position. Um, Thank you. And, and push that, push that way. Failures and shame. The two most powerful forces in people's lives is failure and shame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, to, to go off that point a little bit more, I opened the book with basically the story of Chris Farley, who in my opinion is the funniest person I've ever seen in my entire life. And I think like, I, I literally like Chris Farley to me, I, I've said this to people before, like the people who really kind of know this about me. I have, I have a good, uh, my parents grew up and they were uh, you know, young adults in their twenties mm. and nineties. So they, they grew up with, you know, that type of Saturday Night Live with, you know, Mike Myers and Adam Sandler and Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman and all these people. Chris Farley obviously was the funniest out of all of them, I think. And so we had all those people kind of going in, in that kind of direction. And so Chris Farley, I view him as I don't view him as a person. I view him as like an entity, as like a, just a, a, a thing, like a, a thing that is like yeah. because he was so uniquely gifted with what he did. And he was so uniquely kind of like I've never seen anything like him to this day. I've seen maybe people that are close to him, but not really, honestly. And the problem with Chris Farley is that he had all of his insecurities. And so he bottled them up and didn't share them. And he ended up really, really destroying his life in a lot of ways. And I opened the chap the 10th chapter with basically the story of kind of how he, you know, how a lot of people viewed him after his death and stuff. And, you know, there was this, this quote by Bob Odenkirk, who's the star of Better Call Saul, and he was also in Breaking Bad. And he was a piece of famous comedian, famous writer. And, you know, he said that, and he wrote the famous motivational speaker sketch, which is what I opened the book with, which is Matt Foley, motivational speaker. He wrote that sketch back when they were in Chicago and at Second City. And, you know, he said, you know, the he's like, you know, and he was interviewed in a biography about Chris Farley, and he said, you know, with Chris, there's a certain limit to where it all kind of stops for me. And that limit is where you kill yourself with drugs and alcohol. And that limit is where it stops being so fucking magical. And I think that's really, really powerful. And it's really, really true because, you know, when you really kind of bottle everything up and you don't talk about it, that's, that's hell because you don't really know, you feel like you're by yourself and you feel like you're suffering so individually horribly and you can't do anything about it because you won't open up about it, which is really, really horrible. And too many people do it in my opinion. Yeah, man, I, I completely agree in the, in the terms of I, I put in the, the, the that famous quote of like most people live lives of quiet desperation going to the grave of the song unsung is that they don't they don't put their songs out there. And think about Chris Farley is he was like unabashedly himself. I mean, wild and crazy and extreme and yeah. out there and so fun. And, you know, it, it, as you're saying, I can't help to hear him go, you know, living in a van down by the yeah, river. Man. Right. You just yeah. hear it. Yeah. Right. And it makes you smile yeah. because he was just you could feel you could feel his energy. Um, yeah, and it could channel the you know the the inner Chris Farley. The the thing though is you're right. There's um there's a cost for that for that extreme that extremeness, right? And mm -hmm. and we're trying to find this balance. And I think what's interesting what you're talking about this is you have this like identity issue, right? Which comes to the ego, right? The ego wants to have this identity. It wants to be in congruency with this with this identity. It wants to keep what this thing is alive right, right? I, I am this type of person 
I am not this type of person. Right. Yep. So you're trying, you're trying to, you're trying to hold on to that, that piece, but sometimes it gets rampant, it gets out of control and then you can go extreme in the whole Chris Farley range of stuff. Um, what have you seen in terms of like, cause obviously that's like an overindulgence hedonism kind of thing. Yep. Uh, some, what somebody values, what have you seen in terms of, I think, uh, value identification is one of them saying like, you know, I am self-worth if I've earned it through respect. Have you seen other patterns by looking at other people that what, what are good values to have or ones that you've seen that have created happiness or any of those things have, that have stood out to you as, as value sets that are, I don't want to say worthy of having, but maybe create for a more um, healthy and content person. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are. And I think the, you know, Douglas Murray has said before, and I think this is actually a very, very wise thing to, to understand is that, you know, if you want to find meaning in your life, if you want to have value in your life, look where others have found it before. And I think that's, there's a lot of truth in that to a lot of ways, because, you know, you have to look at the history of humankind and see like, okay, when people were, I would say maybe in a better place inside of themselves, and this can be as, you know, unilateral as your family, this can be societal, society-wide, this can be like worldwide, whatever. I think, you know, people who have a sense of religious values, who value their family, who value their community, who value kind of what they do, the people they work with, their children, everything else. So I think a lot of things around community, a lot of things around centered on a higher power or belief system, no matter what that is. I'm a Christian, but I know a lot of people. I know my my one of my best friends back at Ohio in Columbus, who is uh, who is about uh, devout Muslim, and he's very very happy. He's a very very happy person. And I know a lot of people who are atheists that are very happy people. And so I think that having that kind of sense that there's something bigger than you that you I call it remembering your smallness. So you have to remember kind of how small you are in this whole grand scheme of things. And so I think a greater sense of that there's something greater out there than you, that there's a bigger thing out there than you and taking that responsibility to say that, you know, this thing supersedes me in some way or another. And I should probably do my best to honor that thing in the best way possible, whether that is a romantic partner, whether that's a child, whether that's a, a person you're mentoring, whether that's someone that is mentoring you, all this, a teacher, a coach, everything else. So I think it comes down to a lot of, I think, values that are centered around relationships. So reciprocity mutual respect, affection, you know, uh, paying it forward to other people, all that, those other kind of things. And it can be personalized to all the people that really read this book and want to come up with a value system. And I encourage that inside of the book. I say like, look, I have really one or two word values for my values, but there are people that make like whole value statements for each one of their values. And I, and I love that. I love that about people. So it's really kind of tailored to that individual level. And I think whatever that individual really thinks is the most effective way for them to absorb a higher system of values, that should be the way they go, at least in my opinion. Mm. So do you feel like, uh, there's a couple of questions around that, but do you feel like, I mean, with your the, the use of your book is to help people identify like what their values are and their sets are and get really clear around that and be able to kind of, at the end of that, is the, is the result from going through your book a, an ability and a process to identify and integrate your values into your own life. Is that kind of what the thing is? Yeah. So the way I, I kind of framed it, and this is kind of the, uh, the book description, both on Amazon and on the inside of the book, if you look in the hardcover jacket or on the back cover mm -hmm. is that, you know, there's so much of a industry that's built around self-help and it's great. I'm glad that people want to help other people. And I'm glad that we have people that are really smart in fields of, diet and health and nutrition and mental health and physical health and kind of relationships and romantics and everything like that and literature. But I think that there is a limit to that. And the limit to that is 
how can you help yourself if you don't know who you are in the first place? And so the way I'm positioning my book is that, you know, this is the, obviously the very ambitious goal of this, is that this book is the book you have to read before you try to help yourself in any way, shape or form ever. Because if you don't know that you're helping yourself for the right reasons, then what's the point of even undertaking that activity in the first place? Because you could be helping yourself for the wrong reasons. Like what if you don't really need help in this specific area? You can tweak this one thing and you'll be fine. What if you don't need to do this? What if you might need to do something else? What if you need to, you know, totally reinvent the way that you're looking at something in the first place? So that was kind of the overall goal and everything is to realize what is important to them and then go on that route of self-improvement if you see the fit to improve yourself in those areas. Mm, that makes sense. It's it's so you're talking about, hey, if you if you want to get somewhere, right? And a lot of uh, you know, this the 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 younger generation, um, they're really focused yeah. a lot around Hey, yep. what's my purpose? What's my values? I don't want to just be a nine to fire. I want to have meaning. I want to, I want to move towards a mission and go great. Well, what's your value? What's your mission? What's your purpose? Like, I don't have one. Okay. Well then do anything because you don't have one. You, you can't, it's like saying, I want to go somewhere else. That's just not here, but where do you want to go? I don't know. And that yep. involves, you know, mala beads and wandering the forest barefoot. And, yep. You know, like moving to Austin, Texas. Type shit yeah. 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 <laughs> again for like five years yeah yeah man so it's just kind of figure that thing out and i mean mm -hmm. i think people search that but the only way you do that is you got to be able to sample a bunch of things right i mean i think mm -hmm. I, i'm sure that austin texas is very different culturally and value driven wise than cleveland you know sure. I'm sure that, oh yeah you know, which what you find you kind of sample things and like some things taste well and some things don't you know and that could be the same thing with religions and and um everything else that people do and i think yeah, it's so hard when you don't have any any sense of anything especially if you're being told this is the way things should be it kind of reminds me or it makes me think about in terms of knowledge of uh terms of knowledge some word but if you're looking at it like uh like he's almost like a ginger palate cleanser your book is to say okay you've tried all this other stuff let's let's wipe it and start from zero and yep. say this is this is what we're going to start with okay what do you value do you really value it are you willing to pay a price for what you value and great then okay then then this is this is where you're at now because it's hard if, if people want to coach you if someone's gonna because the coaches are great like the humanity mm -hmm. like the history of mankind this whole podcast hero's journey helped me belong is that we come from from you know countless generations that have helped pass the baton for us to move forward which is yeah. amazing and helpful but we also get that the weird traumas that come along with it and all these other stuff that come along with all the things that allowed us to survive because you know, we were here to survive and, and move along, not necessarily to be completely fulfilled and purpose-driven beings. Right. So, so, you know, uh, along, along that path, is there things around looking at your value sets by looking at your traumas or is there things that like, are there things that you, you go in there to help people kind of find out what they really value? It's a, it's because I can see that the trade-off to kind of say, you can show me it by the things that you've been willing to give up, but there are mm -hmm. other ways to be able to find what you value. Yeah. And I think that that kind of, it, it deals with something similar. And I, I remember one of the openings of one of the chapters is basically saying that, you know, to we're learn like pain is a double-edged sword in a lot of ways, because people can, it, it's easy to learn to run away that we can, you know, be hurt by things that harm us basically. Like this is the don't touch the hot stove thing when you're a kid, like you touch the hot stove once, you know, to not touch the hot stove again. Yeah. But in other ways, we have to learn as human beings that pain can be used for constructive things and can be used for good things. And so I think that the value of pain is both 
learning. It's very hard to navigate this because there are ways that you can, you know, get value out of your pain. But again, you run into the diminishing returns of value problem and you run off the cliff. <laughs> and and so, you know, it, yeah, it, it's all kind of about, it's all about a balance, right? So, I mean, you, you don't want to go through something that is harming, like you don't want to go and say like, okay, this person on the internet said that I'll be, you know, happy if I chop my left arm off. And you don't want to, you don't want to do that. Cause I mean, that could, that like, there's not a lot of, you know, unless you have like a, you know, we've invented cybernetics and you can put like a robot, you know, laser cannon on the side of your arm, which would be really cool, but you can't do that at this point. That would be really cool. But if you can't, we can't do that at this point. So, okay. Like this isn't star Wars. We can't really do that kind of stuff yet. So how can we leverage kind of what that learning mechanism is in order to really kind of run away from the bad stuff and run towards the good stuff while also growing in the process. And there, that feeds into a lot of principles inside of the book, but I think that's a really, really big thing that people can take away from the role of, uh, the, the phrase um, life is suffering is a very, very real thing in all religions. And I know it's primarily a Buddhist phrase, but there is a very, you know, there's it is, I think, the thread that runs through all religions. Certainly, I'm a Christian, so it certainly runs through Christianity. It runs through a lot of other religions and thoughts and everything else like that. And I think the positive side of suffering is a very, very real thing. And people need to, I think, you know, just identify that it is a real thing. Yeah. And yeah, the diminishing turns that I'm sure there is a point where you only hit your, yourself in the hand with a hammer so many times before you go like, okay, man, is this, is this really serving what you yeah. need? You know, yep. which I think is also the same thing of that whole self-love and same thing in terms of self-respect is like, okay, mm -hmm. am I going to, am I going to pull the lesson out of this thing and go, okay, all right, maybe I didn't do it right this time, but next time I'm going to, I'm going to do it right. And, I, and yep. it reminds me a lot about, you know, Victor Franco's man search for meaning. Yeah. Uh, sure. that, right. You're talking mm -hmm. a lot about the, the pain as long as you can find the, the purpose behind the pain you know the pain stops being painful as soon as there's a purpose to a degree because now it becomes meaningful right same yeah. way the mom a mom would jump in front of a bus uh, to protect a child you know it would be more pain but it'd have a deeper purpose but you've got to figure out are you willing to sacrifice uh for your value set so it has meaning so, yeah because i would say you know the value and sacrifice equals meaning so, yeah yeah which is absolutely which is super super interesting stuff so um with you and, and all this stuff that you're trying to create, right? And, and have this be the anti-help book to help people uh, find help themselves along the way, which is a conundrum in and of itself. Do you have like you talked about the big mission and vision of this? Is can you can you can you restate that? Say because I would say like, what is your flag on top of this? If this book was to do X, Y, and Z, or you're able to achieve this goal and it would be worth it, what is your what I'd say holy grail? So I was talking to actually it was funny. I, I was I was mailing some autograph copies of my book out to some family and friends yesterday. And so I was at the UPS store and I was basically I had, you know, a, a set of 10 books. And I was also talking to a group of, I think, two brothers that run this Instagram page that, you know, they wanted 25 of them to give out to their readers. So I was very grateful for that. So I had like a, a large amount, like I literally have 70 hard copies of my book that I'm not going to use. So I'm like, please take them and like take them out of my house. And so I was, you know, giving, you know, all these other things. And I had this massive stack of books in the UPS store. And obviously when, you know, someone is shipping out a massive number of one thing, no matter what they be, people are going to, you're going to drive some, draw some eyeballs. And so then um, obviously there are people that are piling up behind me and behind this UPS store. And I'm like, I'm feeling like the dick that's holding up the line. Who's like, you know, you know, when you're like, you're behind sure. that pole that's ordering like a five yeah. Chipotle bowls and you're like, oh my yeah. God. Like you are the dick. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So yeah. I, like, I, I was that guy. And so I was like letting all these people like kind of go in front of me because these people that had like an Amazon package were trying to just scan a QR code, whatever. And so uh, this lady behind me, she was mailing something and she picks up a copy of my book and then she's like, did you write this? And I said, well, yeah, you can go ahead and take a look at it. I really don't care. And so that was kind of cool. 
And so she's like, you know, she asked me kind of the same questions, like what, and she was kind of like in, you know, I live in Austin, Texas. So it's kind of like, in, you know, a lot of, a lot of artsy people down here. And she was like one of those people. She wasn't like quite mala beads, like you mentioned before, but she was pretty close. And so she's like, and then she kind of asked me in a very kind of like wispy voice. She's like, what is your purpose of writing this book and everything all the kind of of that nature? And I just kind of set off the cuff. I was just kind of so, you know, you know, not really upset about it, but I was just kind of, a lot of people had asked me at this, at this point, since I've been so vocal about, you know, me, the fact that I was writing a book and she said, and I just kind of said, I want people to rediscover the beauty of individualism. And she was like, Oh, and then, so at the end of the day, I, I think that's what I want to do. I think individual people are beautiful people. And I think that individual, I think human beings are fascinating. I think they're very interesting people. And I think that if the general message of the book is that individualism matters and having something to stand your individual to stand to put the rock under your proverbial church that is your life then i think the book will have served its purpose and i think for most of the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive by this point so i'm so grateful for that from the people who have read it and understood it but i want people to to rediscover that you know individualism matters and that it really uh and that really means something in their lives yeah so so the holy grail is to have a, a a collective resonance with being an individual and, yeah yeah that's that's funny and ironic um so i know i think it's true though it's, it's we we like so much i think a lot of times we want we, we know we with the area of like you know uh, if you look at the culture of the u.s right it's very much me first go 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 and we kind of grind yeah. it grind it grind it right versus yeah. say if you go to japan japan's all about a team sport right yeah that's, that's yeah. why there's no very little pollution or not pollution like litter and stuff like that there's a lot of yeah. social yeah. pressures hey man we're all in an island. Be cool. Right. Yeah. yeah right. Various terminology, right. Versus the U S yeah. we come to conquer individually, sail to West, my way, the own way, like, you know, yep. the, the lone cowboy, right. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but then we got to a point where, you know, I think we, you know, we, we, the, the pendulum kind of swings with the whole, like, Hey, um, you know, let's, let's all be accepted. Let's be part of the group. Let's all, let's all. And then it's very hard for us to have that individual self. I mean, it's super easy to stand for something that everybody stands for. Right. And yeah. that collective thing. But really being a true individual, having people see all the ugly sides of you and standing for something, I think is something that's a really, I think it's a really big challenge to get someone to, to individually stand for something that they personally believe, knowing that people will judge them a certain way for holding those beliefs. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really big challenge. What, what do you think is what I would call the greatest dragon, the thing preventing people from really stepping out and being individuals? And putting this stuff out there, doing what you did, you know, like putting things out there that that may not be accepted and, and might be ridiculed, but they still are congruent with their individuality. I think it's fear. I think a lot of it is fear, especially now to your point about, you know, the culture today is that, you know, there's a lot of societal pressure and there's a lot of peer pressure. And you see people getting either, you know, they get, you know, quote unquote canceled or they kind of, you know, they get, you know, ousted from a friend group. We've seen people get fired over some of the things that they believe and everything. So and there, there's reason to be afraid, but there's also reason that that fear is, I don't know how to really phrase that, but I think the, it, I think the thing is that basically don't be so sure that the devil you don't know is better than the devil that you do know. And so, you know, that that one exists where if you do step out and start saying what you actually think about things or acting in your individual values, there's something to be said for that. And there's a legitimate fear that comes with that, but there also is a fear for not following and towing the line of everyone else when you really, and if it's, if you believe, actually believe what they're saying to be true, then that is a very, very okay thing. Like if you actually believe in a set of values, that's your being encouraged and go ahead and believe that thing. 
But if you don't, you're just going along with it to going along with it. You're cheating to yourself and you're lying to yourself about a lot of things. And I don't think that's very okay to do to yourself as a person. Like you owe it to yourself to be honest. And so I would say, don't be so sure of yourself if you really don't feel that sure of yourself. Because odds are, if you don't really find yourself in complete lockstep, which I don't think hardly anybody does, or, you know, whatever any person says, then, you know, I think it's fear that prevents a lot of us to really kind of slay that big dragon you're talking about. And I think that, again, breaking it away and chipping it away one layer at a time is going to be probably the biggest way to go about, you know, fixing that problem. Yeah, I think it's great, man. The the don't be so sure that the devil you know or the devil that you don't know is worse than the devil you do. And I think that's right with a lot of these. There's these pieces that people want to get to another another place, right? That value and sacrifice, but they're not willing to let go of whatever the things they're comfortable at, right? Even though it makes them unhappy. It's well, it's so much easier to lie. It's so much easier to whatever. Yeah. It's so much easier to do this thing. And I know this, and I'm comfortable with it. I'm safe with the thing. But we do this other thing then, you know, all these bad things could happen, which they absolutely could. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, there's a lot of validity yeah. to that. It yeah, it's true. It's totally, yeah. totally yeah. true, man. Yeah. Totally true. But there's, yeah. a, there, there's an absolute power in that though. And, and, but if you're willing to taste it, not let that devil fear you and rule you, but actually, you know, be able to, you know, bravely step into it and say, Oh, okay. And then choose with actual knowledge, what path you want to go on, you know, based on the fact that you're willing to sample a lot of different devils. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I think you can get to where you want to go. I think it's been beautiful. Um, Sam, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. It's been great jamming with you. Is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you or your book? Um, I would just say, you know, anything inside of, you know, anything inside of the book, I think, you know, I, I built this book for basically, you know, it's not meant to follow a particular set of ideology. I think everyone can read this book and get something out of it. And I truly, this is not me trying to sell books. Well, it is, but it's not. But, you know, I think, you know, at least, you know, kind of, you know, I would say just, you know, give it a try. And just uh, what I encourage at the end of the book and the, very last, I would say, paragraph of it. And, you know, just think about these things, meditate on them, think about them, ask yourself questions, make them hard questions, and then see where you're at and then reassess and then do that again and again and again. And I think that you will probably end up in a better spot before you did that or after you did that exercise, excuse me, than before you did it. Love it. Um, and Sam, if people want to get a hold of you or the book, how do they do that? Yeah, for sure. My name is uh, Sam Lacrosse, like the sport, capital C as is the C in the last name. My Instagram is at real Sam Lax, L-A-X. And then my book is uh, Value Economics, Study of Identity. And it's on all platforms, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's got, you know, I think around four and a half, 4.7 stars on Amazon right now out of a couple dozen reviews. That's awesome. And then uh, my blog, right blogs on don'treadthisblog.com, but don't listen to this podcast is all on all streaming platforms. And Again, just um, thank you for having me on, Dylan. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely, brother. All right, have a blessed and beautiful day. I'll see you on the other side. Take care now. Thanks, man. You too. Bye. See you. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.